Hey everybody, I'm sorry I can't be with you today. I am at the Evergreen Baptist Association's annual meeting up in Seattle. Evergreen is our region within the American Baptist Convention of which we've been a part since 1860. Our church would not have existed had it not been for the support of this larger denomination, uh, which has helped us over the years and make transitions. And we're really proud to be a part of that heritage. It's a very diverse, uh, very broad theologically uh, organization. Uh, we're definitely on the more progressive side, but there's room for us. And Evergreen has been a welcoming uh, region for us as we have navigated our way uh, to where we are now. So we're grateful for that and uh, look forward to figuring out how we can support uh, Evergreen uh, more fully and take advantage of all they have to offer. So anyway, uh, that's where I am today, but I've got some really great voices that I want you to hear today. Uh, one of them you haven't heard uh, yet before. Her name is Marjorie Sue Hockey. Uh, you've seen her um, quoted a lot in Epperly's book, uh, Praying with Process Theology. Uh, she's quoted probably more than anybody else uh, in the book. And the reason why is because she wrote a book called In God's Presence, uh, which is a seminal work on understanding prayer and how this all works. So I want you to hear her, and then uh, you'll hear from Bruce Epperly on some caveats with, uh, with this whole prayer thing and world loyalty and what that's about and how do we understand that. And then uh, you'll hear from Monica Coleman, who I uh, shared some things with you uh, previously. And so anyway, all this collectively, I think you're going to walk away with a lot. So take notes. It's going to be good. And fair warning, uh, <laughs> the video with uh, Marjorie Suhaki, um, it's dated. Uh, I mean, it's dated. You're going to see uh, what technology looked like in about 1982 or three, I'm guessing, uh, based on her hairstyle, her blouse, and the quality of the video and some of the ways that she inflects her voice. That is a time capsule from 1982. And I, it was, it's so, so much of a time capsule. I almost axed it because I was like, oh, they're, they're not going to be able to get past this because it's almost comical how, <laughs> how dated it is. It's 40 years old, I'm guessing, somewhere in that neck of the woods. Um, but then I thought, no, I want you to see it because I want you to understand there's, there's history here. There's legacy here. Uh, and it's been around a while. She's been one of the leading voices in helping develop this whole uh, idea, uh, which is really exciting. Uh, she was born in 1933, so she's the same age as my dad. So she's 90 years old. Uh, she still is alive, and she still contributes uh, to the conversation. Uh, so this was back when she's probably what, 50 years old or something, and uh, and contributing uh, in heavy ways. So enjoy your content. Uh, get, get past her hairstyle and her blouse. <laughs> you know, let's let Shallow Hal just go uh, into the lobby uh, for a moment and appreciate what she has to say because she's got just gold uh, here. So appreciate that. And then you're going to hear from Bruce Epperly, who's the author of the book we've been walking through. And then, as I said, Monica Coleman, uh, who is a process theologian and professor and an author. Uh, she has great things to say about mental health and mental wellness and how she has understood her faith and uh, with her struggle with bipolar, uh, not in this episode, but in her greater body of work. So good, good people uh, to listen to. And then I'll be with you at the very end uh, just to lead you through um, the, the Lord's Prayer together. Okay, so enjoy and I'll see you in a bit. I want to talk about prayer and the way that I experience prayer and understand prayer 
through a process perspective. Now, you might possibly think, well, what's so processive about that? Let me tell you some of the problems I had prior to coming at this way of thinking about prayer and experiencing prayer, and then you'll understand me better, perhaps. I used to think, if God already has everything already planned, well, what difference does it make that I pray about it? I mean, if it's going to happen anyhow, what difference does it make? Another problem I would sometimes have would be more like this. Well, if I'm praying for one thing, and another person is praying for something else, and they two contradict each other, well, which prayer does God hear? You know, sort of like the old thing about two sport teams and fervent people praying for the, each team to win. Well, what difference? You can see the problem. I would also then sometimes run into a different kind of a problem. Why should God hear me? I'm, I'm just, just an ordinary person in the world. There are so many. How could God hear me? Once, once when I was in Florence, in Italy, I happened to have a room that was at the, at the edge of the street, you know, and during the night I suddenly heard, it seemed all of these noises, like conversations all over the place, and I thought, well, maybe there's a parade down in the street or something, and I went and looked out the window and there was nothing there, and eventually I came to understand that the, somehow the way the room was situated with the, the draft window and the windows in the out street, I was hearing conversations from all these different rooms at once, and I began to think, must be terrible to be God listening to people praying all over the place. It's nothing but this awful babble. How does God hear prayer? And how does God hear mine from out of the millions of other prayers that are being given at the same time? Now, maybe in one sense they're silly problems, but they're problems that I had. How does process help me understand prayer? And how does process help me experience prayer? Existence is relational. What relations? All relations. God is one who is in relation with everything which exists. Now, everything except me? What kind of a God would that be? Uh -uh, even me. Therefore, God hears prayers. How? With ears like me listening to all those voices in Florence? Uh-uh. God hears feelingly. God hears from the inside. God feels our prayers. There's our language, you know, and I think that God must translate from our language to ourselves, to the reality of who we are. All prayer is honest. God feels who we are, and therefore God feels rather than hears our prayers. To be in relation is to be in relation with all things. A being like God is in relation with all things feelingly and has the ability to feel all, integrated into the divine nature, and give back the appropriate response in billions places and spaces at once. The concept of a God like that is to have a concept of a God to whom prayer matters. Also in a process context is this. God feels the world, right? How? As the world is. God works with the world as it is to bring the world to where it can be. And whether the world then moves to where it can be depends upon the world. God works the, with the world's response to God's guidance and again brings it to where it can be. Again and again, there's a faithfulness to God. Now, think of these two things. If, in fact, God is in relation to all of the world, then God hears all of our prayers, even mine, right? And if God works with the world the way the world is to bring the world to where it can be, well, then don't you see? It makes a difference what is in the world. 
And when I pray, I have changed the way the world is. But if I've changed the way the world is through my praying, then I've also changed the way the world can be. My prayers actually make a difference. They give God something to work with in the world that is not there without my prayers. Therefore, prayer has a mattering effect. It changes, literally, changes the world. Now then, if prayer changes the world, do you see the difference it makes to our responsibility as persons who are in this world? It means then that we have a responsibility to pray for the world, to pray for those things which are of concern, because it makes a difference when we pray. If it makes a difference when we pray, we are then responsible for praying. We must pray. Prayer is not then a last resort, the thing you go to when all else fails, you know. Prayer is the first resort because prayer is an immediate change of the way the world is. Therefore, it's not something you wait to do when all else fails. It's the first thing you do. You change the way the world is in relation to that thing which concerns you. But then the other thing is, you not only have a responsibility to pray, it's not only the first thing one does, but then you can release the prayer. Remember my problem, you know, which one is God going to listen to? Everyone. You release the prayer to God so that God can work with that prayer according to God's own wisdom. And how is God wise? God is wise through understanding all of the circumstances, all of the context, all of that which is best, and all of its various ramifications. I certainly can't understand that. God can. Therefore, when I pray about a situation in the world, I'm then responsible for releasing that prayer and letting God do with it as God wills and I get on about with my business in the world, whatever it may be. Now then, think, however, of this. When we pray in this process universe, we are responsible for changing the way the world is, for releasing that prayer so God can work with it. But in a relational world, God works with our prayers to change the way the world can be, we don't answer our prayers, God does. But God may answer our prayers through ourselves. So that to pray for the world is then to be open to be used by God to address the very needs for which we have been praying. It doesn't mean that we pray and then become puppets on a string going about answering our prayers, uh-uh. It's more like this. You pray for a situation, you release that situation to God, and then you are open to whatever seems to be appropriate with regard to your own action where that situation is concerned. You live in an openness when you live through prayer. Openness to act in that situation as seems appropriate. And again, releasing every action, assuming that the God who works with the world the way the world is will take your actions and weave them redemptively into the divine nature and through them make a difference in the immediate place where you are working, living, having your being, but also throughout this whole wide universe. Because God can take action here, integrate it into who God is, and then use it to make an effect there. God is not limited to space as we are. Therefore, the prayers which we offer in a tiny corner of existence, in the wisdom and providence of God, can make a difference throughout
the whole universe. Prayer, through a process understanding of the world, is one of the primary tools for working in the world, not in a passive kind of a way, so that one then closets oneself off in the nearest closet, you know, but in responsive, open way, so that we in fact address the world knowing that our prayers make a difference to it. It's almost taking that old biblical injunction, you know, pray without ceasing, and turning it into the reality of our openness to the way the world is and our offering of our concern for that world to God in every moment of our existence, releasing it always to God, and then trusting God to respond, because God is faithful, and God is relational, and therefore God will respond. And we can leave that response to God, and yet continue in an openness that looks for that which is given to us in the immediacy of our moment that will be our own response to the responsiveness of God in prayer. In a process world, prayer makes a difference. It's the first resort. It's a responsibility of every person, which is then released for God to do with as God will, but then opens us to the action which follows every prayer. In a process world, you'd better believe it makes a difference. And then there are all types of ways to pray then. Some of us pray with our words. Some of us pray through silence, through contemplation, through meditation, and saying, if I'm still, what, what comes to me will be the voice of God, I hope. <laughs> um, some of us pray through dance, through song, through music, through our actions. If we are the hands and feet of God, in some ways, that's what our prayer looks like. We're both an embodiment of God and talking with God at the same time. But it does mean that we would think about prayer a little bit differently. We would think about what, what it's doing, that part of what prayer is doing is hopefully changing us. And, it's, you know, that maybe prayer is as much more for us than we think about it as asking God to do stuff and hoping God will do it and that God will listen to our prayers and not someone else's, or that God did listen to our prayers and didn't listen to someone else's. But the prayer is for us. That is to help us to better hear that call that's always there, that's always coming to us. To help us to structure the way we interact in the world, the way we see the world, the way we hear the world, the way we walk in the world, in ways that will keep us attuned to the Godness that's in the world, to the voice of God, the sound of God. That it's, it's for us. It's that slow yourself down-ness that we need, take some deep breaths, and let's think about how it is we can do something new, how it is we can hear what God is asking us to do, calling us to do, how there can be the most justice, the most love, the most beauty in our day, in this moment, in this context. And that it's, it's, the part of it's for us. And that's why sometimes it works really well when we do it all together. Because we're not just doing this, like, how do I hear? But how does my community do this? Right? How can we hear this together? How can we strive in these ways together? How can we be attuned to the sacred in everything? And so that's why I think there isn't a sense of, I got it right, I got it wrong, <clears throat> wrongness, that I don't know if there is like, well, God has this one way, 
And we're trying to guess what it is. You know, I had a good stint, as many of you know my story, in evangelical Christianity. And so we had this idea of like, oh, God doesn't have little wills for our life. God has one big will. We're supposed to plug ourselves into it. And I don't know if either one of those are right. If there's one will, I'm trying to plug myself in and figure out what it is and where I fit. Or if God has a will for each of us, our little lives, and I'm trying to be like, God, show me your will. You show it to me, I'll do it. You show it to me, I'll do it. Just tell me what your will is. I'm praying to find out your will. I want to be able to hear your voice right. As if there's like this one path. I don't know that, I don't think that's how God works necessarily. I think sometimes like God's like, yeah, there's six paths. You know, three of them are equally good. Three are clearly not so good. But maybe it doesn't matter which of those three. They're just three different paths. I'd be great Be great if you don't take the one where you pick up a gun and kill the people. That might be a path we don't take. But you could do A, B, or C, and they're equally fine. They're just different. I don't know that there's this A path that I'm always trying to hear. And if I could just hear it and I do the right thing, I mean, how stressful is that? It's very stressful. I've lived that life where I'm trying to hear what is the one thing that you want me to do, God, and I'll just do it. And, oh, it didn't go right, so maybe I heard wrong. Maybe I did it wrong because there was a right way. Eh, I think we really overcomplicated it. <laughs> I think it's more like, okay, there's some obviously bad ways you might want to go. And we do bad ways all the time, knowingly. We choose the way of selfishness all the time. What's better for me is what I'm thinking about. What's better for me and my people, me and my household, me and my family, because we're scared, because we are feeling defensive, because we feel threatened. There are all types of reasons why we might not be choosing what's best for the common good, what's fair. And we do this individually. We do it communally. <laughs> I mean, you can think of all the ways you might see this in the world historically and in the present, but that's not the goal. The goal is to be like, how can we not be doing that? <laughs> how can we act in ways that remind us that we're all connected to each other, that God is in everyone, that God is in everything? How can we operate in ways that are best for the common good, that actually treat people <laughs> and animals and the earth like God is in it? I mean, this is us at our best, and we all know we are not at our best all the time. So I don't know that it's as much like we're trying to hear this one thing, but we want to almost change the way we are, change the way we are in the world to, so that we hear differently, we think differently, we act differently. And I think that's what I would like prayer to do, to get me to slow myself down, to think about the best of the ancestors, maybe even the worst of it, and be like, don't do that. <laughs> but even maybe the best of what my ancestors have to give me, the best of what God can show us, the best of what the future could be, and to try to go forth in that way. And then to grab with my band of, you know, merry followers, <laughs> as they say, so that we might do this in communal ways, that that would be the hope, the, the ideal. Uh, but for me, the Whitehead uses this comment that peace emerges from the movement from self-interest, which was I'm the center of things. Uh, what happens to me is what's really important to world loyalty, the sense that the self's interest expands beyond itself. That you, And we all know this uh, as a parent and grandparent, uh, what happens to my children or child or grandchildren is is as important as what happens to me. I'm I'm the locus of experience. It's me experiencing this, but their their joy and sadness is quite often more important than my own. 
and and has a larger, greater attention for them than myself, and that's appropriate. And I think this religious life invites us to widen always the scope of our our care, widen our compassion. We we start somewhere by by loving those nearest and dearest to us, but world loyalty is is an expansion of the self. And, and an intentional expansion of the self, and it happens through prayer and, and spiritual experiences, to see the good of the other as important as one's own and see the good of the planet as important as one's own. And, and I think uh, it's, it's, it's in a way the, uh, the mystic uh, or the person who's had a near-death experience, and then, then that's a mystical experience too, uh, loses their sense of an individual isolated self. Um, it's a bit in the Christian tradition, we call it, uh, having the mind of Christ, uh, in the Buddhist tradition, we'd call it being a bodhisattva, uh, where the bodhisattva d- stays in this world rather than, than, than moving into a not enlightenment and, and out of the world system, staying into the world until every creature finds enlightenment, uh, we we can't argue the metaphysics of that one way or the other. Uh, there are very few bodhisattvas that we know of among us. There may be a whole bunch of them. We may just not know them. Uh, you know, there may be the saint right next to you on, on, on driving on the freeway and, uh, on 101 or uh, uh, Highway 1 out near the ocean. Uh, the, but the, the sense that uh, we can pray for the goodness and well-being of the planet, and and quite often our prayers uh, take on uh, action. I think uh, uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, one of the great theologians of our time, talks about marching with with Martin Luther King in in saying, "I felt like my legs were praying." Um, I think process spirituality uh, when it comes to world loyalty. Then the question is, how does our spiritual life then become embodied in what in one moment at a time actions to save the world. Uh, the the Jewish mystics, and you can interpret the hundredth uh, the 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 lost sheep through this uh, uh, parable of lost sheep. Jewish mystics believe that the world is saved or destroyed one person at a time. Uh, it comes together or it, uh, collapses. Uh, I think that's rather generous, just like I think the 12-step movements are a little generous. One day at a time is too generous, one moment at a time. We save the world one moment at a time by by being in alignment with God's vision one moment at a time, over and over and over again, and that affects itself in actions. So our spirituality becomes a spirituality that is deep within, and also shapes our actions, our citizenship, our politics. And 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 should and I think the prophets in the Old Testament uh were deeply spiritual people. They had an encounter with the holy, uh whether it be even if it's something that's spoken of in one sentence like Amos, the word of God came to Amos. Well, we have no idea what on earth that meant. He just said the word of God came to Amos. It was surely some sort of communication of the holy to him that transformed his life, that that caused him to move 
from the south to the north. Uh, or something much more dramatic as Isaiah being in the temple and, and having exp experiencing God on a throne. Well, you know, God probably is both non-local and local. I mean, for, you know, as, as Tip O'Neill used to say, all politics is local, the same for spirituality, but it shouldn't end at local. So Isaiah has this experience of God on a throne and then discovers that God, uh, in the same moment, he hears the angels saying, holy, 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 heaven and earth are filled with God's glory, and that becomes the cosmic. That becomes the cosmic, the uh, the world loyalty, not just about Israel, but about the universe. Yeah. Well, include. well, well, obviously, you know, uh, I'm not a uh, a person who uh, what what Larry Dossie, the physician, talks about prayer muggings. Uh, Praise for that which they consciously don't want. Uh, you know, I, I I enter into a conversation uh, and say, "Tell me what's on your heart right now," uh, uh, and then I, I pray for healing. I pray for healing, not knowing what that healing is. Uh, you know, I believe that when there can't be a cure, there can always be a healing, uh, and a cure. Uh, and people are cured from for, for reasons that we can't explain. People do experience remissions from stage four cancers. It's probably one out of 20, but but these things do happen. Who knows how? And I'm willing to pray for a cure if that's what they feel is on their heart at this moment. But when I use the term healing, I pray for God's healing touch to rest upon them, uh, to be present in their soul and in their cells. Whether we're living or dying, to, to have some physical comfort is a good thing. Uh, to their for their soul and I, and I could use spirit, but soul just soul and cell kind of sound similar. So it's my my mantra there that praying for the healing of their soul and cells kind of encompasses their well being and whatever happens. Uh, and and I don't make any promises. I just simply see prayer as an act of connection, an act of love, an act that brings us together in relationship to God. And who knows what will happen? You know, in every church, and you know this as a pastor, there's somebody who's just got that word. Maybe it's a, a treatable cancer, and they, they'll go in and have a mastectomy. Maybe it's a one, and uh, we live near NIH, so people in our church where I belong, where I'm a member now, uh, will go to, to get clinical trials. Um, you know, that's kind of your last ditch, you know. Uh, but still to pray and to be present and to pray for healing, uh, knowing that uh, they need that sense of confidence in God's presence so that when, when Paul says, uh, and I've been pondering this this morning, uh, had, had what was to me an insight on Scripture, maybe, maybe it's one that everyone else has had for their whole lifetime, but when Paul says, nothing can separate me from the love of God, the way I usually interpret this is that bad things can't separate me from the love of God. You know, uh, life, death, powers, principalities. Another way of looking at this from a process point of view is that nothing can separate me from the love of God. It's right here. 
It's right here. There's no ontological. That's a fancy word for saying uh, real distance between God and me. God is already here. God is feeling my pain, feeling my joy, feeling my hope and anticipation, uh, feeling my sense of ambivalence about the future. Uh, God isn't imported from somewhere else. Spirit isn't imported from somewhere else. Jesus isn't imported. They're already here. This is the thin place. And and it's interesting, again, from uh, many people, when, when there's not a cure uh, possible or they have to live with cancer as a chronic illness, as many people do, I have friends and acquaintances who've had cancer for 10 years, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's ultimately incurable for them, but they're still living with it. I, I pray for them every day. Uh, and and uh, I don't know what difference it makes, but I have one friend who lasted several years past the diagnosis, and uh, she passed away. But she always said, well, your prayers and your distant uh, healing energy uh, made a difference in my longevity. I don't know if that's true. I'm not going to—I believe we should should hope on hope hope for great things, but not necessarily claim the ability to do great things. And what you're talking about is kind of what gets all of us is, is that suffering evil thing. Why are people suffering and why is it that no one seemed to do anything wrong? Because we're kind of okay when we think people who did bad things suffer. We kind of think that's okay, even though we should probably question that too. But <laughs> we think it's okay if we think people did something that entitled them to suffer, but someone didn't do anything and they suffer. That's not okay. That befuddles us because in our head, we want to think the good things happen to good people and the suffering happens to the bad people. And it's not like we get this from nowhere. This is kind of what a lot of the Hebrews thought. If we do good things, God will bless us. And if bad things happen, it's because God's cursing us because we didn't pray enough. We didn't do enough sacrifices. We turned our backs on God. Like we get this from somewhere. And there was a whole school of thought in the Hebraic Testament that thought that, but not everyone thought that. Not all schools of thought. You'll see a lot of different things because they're all trying to figure out what we're trying to figure out, <laughs> the same thing. So what we would say in process is, well, the thing is that it's not God's not Santa Claus. It's not like God knows when you're sleeping, God knows when you're not, and God's going to reward you if you do the right thing, and God's not, right? That's why we have a Santa Claus, because that's not God. But a lot of times we do treat God like God's Santa Claus. <laughs> like if we just act right and do right and pray right, then the blessings will come. As compared to, well, let's see what God has to work with here. God's working with maybe a compromised immune system that the best medical science has to give us is chemotherapy, which kills bad cells, but also kills good cells. That we haven't, our, our science hasn't gotten a lot better than that. That everything wants to live, including the cancer cells. And sometimes they live and the other ones don't. 
And God's in all of them. And that is hard because sometimes we think that God's only on people's side. So it's not that God's like, I'm doing everything I can. And maybe where God is, is that mom's not alone, but that there are all these people there with mom who love mom and care about mom and are going to be there so that when mom does pass, if this is what's going to happen, mom's not alone, but always knows that mom is loved and that someone's going to take care of you, of you too. And maybe they'll grow up to be cancer research scientists. Who knows that this will stick in them. It's like, hey, I want to be part of finding the solution to this, or I'm going to give 10% of my little allowance to the American Cancer Society, or I am so amazed that my mom made sure that there were these four people who are always going to take care of me, even when my mom couldn't. So it's not like I prayed the thing and it didn't happen the way I wanted to, which is how all of us feel. Like, you know, all of us do. (laughs) And that means I did something wrong. It's like, sometimes God, this is, I'm working with what I have to work with and I don't have enough this time. And that resurrection might not mean that we literally rise from the dead. Mm -hmm. I think resurrection means the end is not the end. That what we think is going to take us out doesn't take us out. That what we think is the end and the worst thing can happen to us, there's still tomorrow. That there's still life we can find after death. So that there's still life to be had even after mom passes. Not necessarily that there's going to be this bodily resurrection. Because even if mom survived. Mom is not the same. The body is not the same. The way everyone experiences the world has now changed. Even if you get up, you're not the same who you're not the same person. You're not the same family as who you were before that kind of suffering. So I hope you enjoyed those voices and you probably feel like you've been taking a drink out of a fire hose. So this morning, I hope you enjoyed the content. I hope there was something or several things that really stuck with you. And to end our time together, I want to end with the classic Lord's Prayer with a reminder uh, that this is meant to be more of a way of being in the world and an approach to relationship with God, not just a great prayer to memorize, because it is a great prayer to memorize, because if you have it memorized, then you can walk through the processes and the, and the schema of the thing, uh, so that can help you form your life. Just remember, starts off with this idea of an expansive God, that we come humbly before the presence of God, who is bigger than any of us and bigger than everything, is with the universe and all of its expansion. Uh, we're, we're saying we want to align ourselves uh, with the ways of God. We're saying we want to be fed by God, not just literally with this amazing creation that continues to feed and nourish us, but we want to grow deeper spiritually. It's saying we want to be a graceful forgiveness people, recognizing that as we choose to forgive, we experience the grace of God more fully ourselves. We're saying to God that we're suckers at times and and we're asking to not be led into temptation, but recognizing that at times we will and we're asking for help to get us out of those uh, snares and those pits that we find ourselves in. And the whole thing wraps up with a reminder, just like at the beginning, that there is a power and a kingdom that is greater than this. Uh, that we're experiencing that's bigger than the United States, that is all about everybody in the world and the world itself for its betterment. And we want to be a part of that. So anyway, join me as we pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.